the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thanks for joining us on this edition. Follow us at danproftshow.com. So that's where you get podcasts as well as Spotify and iTunes, all the places that have podcasts of such programs and uh, on social media at Dan Prof Show. We begin on COVID and uh, the president uh, announcing yesterday at a informal briefing that uh, featured some cabinet secretaries as uh, well as uh, senior advisors that uh, the COVID-19 briefings will resume uh, and uh, President Trump uh, profiling what uh, they're going to include we had very successful briefings i was doing them and uh we had a lot of people watching record numbers watching in the history of cable television television there's never been anything like it so i think what we're going to do is uh, i'll get involved and we'll start doing briefings whether it's this afternoon or tomorrow probably tomorrow and i'll do briefings i think it is too and i definitely like the resumption because of the charge and you know the belief that's being propagated by the media that uh, there's an absence of leadership on the issue at a time with spiking cases as we've moved the measurement from nothing some, from something comprehensive to just limited look at cases and we mentioned this yesterday in florida one of the hotspots. let's talk about the hotspots briefly and before our, our guest joins us in florida two hundred sixty-five thousand new cases since june a hundred thousand of those 45 years and older 1500 people have died of those hundred thousand cases the average age of death, 80 years old. That's a fatality rate of 1.5%. 165,000 cases, so 1.6 times the number of cases, 45 years and under, as compared to 45 years and older, 75 have died. That's four one-hundredths of a percent. As uh, noted Stanford epidemiologist John Unides has said, if you're under... 45 years old, your chances of dying of COVID-19 are almost zero. That seems to bear out, although that's not, I think, the generally understood truth. In Arizona, another hotspot, James Freeman reporting the Wall Street Journal yesterday, based on the uh, certificate, death certificate data, CDC information, the percentage of deaths attributed to pneumonia, influenza, or COVID-19 decreased from 8.1% during the week of July 4th to the 11th to 6.4%, representing the 12th week of a declining percentage of deaths due to COVID-19. Alex Berenson tweeting out yesterday about uh, Florida, as well as Houston, Texas. The real story of Florida is incredible. 150,000 positive tests in the last two weeks and effectively no change in either total hospitalizations or ICU statewide. Huh. In Houston, all the hospitals are... Not full. New COVID hospitalizations are down 30% over the week, over the last week. So so that, that 
cases in context is something the president needs to explain. The data on schools in the context of the debate and I, the, the amazing nature that there is even a debate also has to be distilled. And then, as the president said, a continuing update on development of vaccines and where those stand with some encouraging news over the last couple of days from Oxford, the Oxford AstraZeneca group, as well as uh, earlier from uh, other operations that are competing to bring vaccines to market as well as therapeutics. But uh, again, Reuters reporting yesterday, this is so critical. Sweden versus Finland. Sweden's decision to keep schools open during the pandemic resulted in no higher rate of infection among its school children than in neighboring Finland, where schools did temporarily close. 0.05% infections in both countries. The, the uh, study, which admittedly has not been peer reviewed, but the raw data suggests in conclusion, the closure or not of schools had no measurable direct impact on the number of laboratory confirmed cases in school aged children in Finland or Sweden, according to their public health agencies. In fact, the report showed that severe cases of COVID-19 were very rare among both Swedish and Finnish children aged 1 to 19 with zero deaths reported. None. Also, a comparison of the incidence of COVID-19 in different professions suggested no increased risk for teachers. And we have data from another two dozen countries in addition to those. And yet we have melodramatic op-eds in The New York Times from teachers suggesting that going back to school is some sort of... uh, Russian roulette with their lives. It just is not supported by the evidence. It's not even close. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Roger Klein. He's an expert with the Regulatory Transparency Project's FDA and Health Working Group, former director of molecular oncology at the Cleveland Clinic, former advisor to the FDA, CDC, CMS, and HHS. So he knows all the players. Dr. Klein, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Yeah, hi, Dan. Thank you for having me. Let's start with the uh, the case uh, spikes in some of the hotspots in particular and, and the increase in cases. Yes, but the decline, significant decline in the median age of those being infected and the continuing uh, reduction in case fatality rate. W- w- what are we to make of what's transpired over the last several weeks in places like Arizona, Texas and Florida and California? Should we be watching states pursue a second round of shutdowns? Uh, well, well, actually, no, we should. We absolutely shouldn't do that because we don't have any real reason to believe that they're helpful or that they're going to uh, to change the long term course of this epidemic. And all they do is cause economic distress and psychological distress to people. So, no, we shouldn't do that. Uh, we, we're learning to live with it. And that's what we need to do. I, you know, I want to comment specifically about Florida. I think they are doing a great job. And I and, and so I. You know, this is such a different narrative than you'll hear in the media. But I look, first of all, the, the data tracking is is amazing. They have, uh, as do most of these states, they have really good data published on their websites. But, but what I really liked there was they tabulate the deaths occurring at each nursing home. Yeah. So they they there. And I think one of the reasons that that the death rates are so low is because they're they're watching the nursing home so closely. And that's really one of the types of targeted approaches that we need to take in this country in order to minimize deaths from this virus as, as, uh, in accordance with the data that you presented, which is a- absolutely correct. The, the one, the one, um, the one point I would add is, is the case fatality rates that you're presenting are, are much, much higher, even as low as they are much, much higher than the infection fatality rates. 
because we're not capturing all the infections. Florida's got a lot of right. cases. They are doing a lot of testing. They have tested over 3 million people. We have to understand the disease, the virus, it's spreading. But on the other hand, it, it's oh, many, many of these people who are, who are being tested now and being confirmed to have the, to carry the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus would not have been tested in March or April. And so when you hear uh, Dr. Redfield at CDC say, if everybody wore masks for six weeks, we beat this thing, uh, how do you respond? The president responded on Chris Wallace on Sunday, basically saying, well, look, I don't believe that's true, number one. And I think what he's saying is wearing a mask doesn't eliminate the virus's existence. It, it may may slow the spread a little bit. It may protect some people. But the idea that that is some sort of panacea and then we'll be on the other side of the virus, that's sort of, uh, well, that, there's just no basis for that, is there? No. I don't know why you would make a statement like that. It's really uh, it's really coming from, from way out. I mean, I, th- this, is, this is very foolish. There, there was a study that was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences recently and the and, and I look, I'm not the biggest fan of, of mathematical models, but I think it's worth looking at this, the authors uh, projected or estimated that we would need to to isolate every, every each symptomatic case and w- over one third of all asymptomatic cases in the United States in order to suppress the infection to less than one percent. And that's not getting rid of it. It's suppressing it. The notion that 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 masks are going to get rid of this is is really quite foolish. We don't even have we don't have direct evidence that masks are actually going to uh, even slow the spread. We don't we don't have direct evidence of that. We have uh, sort of extrapolations that we're assuming uh, that they may work. Uh, But the idea that they're going to alter dramatically the long-term trajectory of this virus makes no sense. We have a virus that that many people, including these experts you quote, will will say uh, is twice as transmissible or more than influenza. And we know that the 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 period during which the virus can can be transmitted is um, the pre-symptomatic, for example, period is maybe three, four times longer than that for influenza. If masks can't get rid of influenza, it seems impossible to believe they're going to get rid of a virus that seems much more likely to spread. And what we need to do... Let's let's, let's just hold it there, and then we'll come back on on that point that you were going to make about what we need to do. I also want to get your... Uh, assessments of some of the the other topics we were getting to, which is uh, the school reopenings, as well as where we are in vaccine development based on the news reports. More with Dr. Roger Klein, former director of oncology at the Cleveland Clinic, right after this. Show.com. Welcome back. Uh, before the uh, break, we were talking uh, a little bit about influenza in the context of mask wearing and so forth. And there's another point uh, uh, about this. We find that CDC reported that 620 Americans younger than 25 died from flu and pneumonia in 2018, the most recent year of data available. COVID to date has taken the lives of 30 children aged 1 to 14 and 149 young people aged 15 to 24 
This means that based on most current data, children are more than three times more likely to die of the flu or pneumonia than from COVID. We also know that that's in a 2018 CDC study of six flu seasons concluded that half of the flu-related deaths occurred in otherwise healthy children, 22% of whom were fully vaccinated. So one in five children who died in 2018 were fully vaccinated, otherwise healthy, and still the flu struck them down tragically. The point is to say that uh, none of this stuff is a panacea. So the people running around and saying, just wear a mask and it goes away, or just get a vaccine and then that's the end of it, this is not the end of it. There needs to be a little bit more restraint and context given to what we understand we're doing as well as we're trying to do and associated risk assessments, it seems to me. For more on this, we're joined again by Dr. Roger Klein. He's an expert with the Regulatory Transparency Projects, FDA and Health Working Group, former head of molecular oncology at the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, Dr. Klein, you were going to make a point before the break about this very topic of of influenza versus COVID, about mask wearing and and maybe uh, fold in vaccines as well, based on that CDC information I just provided. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I, where what you just said is is correct, and the point I was making about the masks are we tra- influenza is transmitted similarly as is probably less contagious and and has a, a lower wind a shorter window of transmissibility without uh, asymptomatic transmissibility. So if you can't get rid of influenza with a mask, you're not going to get rid of this with a mask. There was something interesting in the Wall Street Journal yesterday. They actually showed the theory on which a lot of the mask wearing is based, and it involved using a mannequin to cough. And they showed with different types of covering how far droplets went around the mask, and they measured this. And what was interesting was the paragraph right next to it talked about Dr. Redfield saying how um, we know we should wear masks because we know there's a lot of asymptomatic spread. But asymptomatic spread and coughing by a mannequin didn't seem to correlate. And you know, I was wondering how many people caught that uh, that huh. that sort of that inconsistent juxtaposition where uh, a cough is a symptom. You know, and, and I don't yeah. think anybody's arguing that you shouldn't take symptomatic people and put a mask on. I don't know whether it works or not. Maybe it does. But I think the question is whether everybody in the general public needs to be wearing a mask. You know, it really uh, undermines the credibility, at least for the, I guess, small percentage of people that are paying this close attention and, and actually reading what's put out and measuring it against the evidence because on the one hand, you're saying be very afraid, and that's what the media is saying. On the other hand, um, this is going to protect you from everything. So you're fear-mongering on the one hand, and then you're presenting a false panacea on the other. It's a sort of a, a problematic twofer, I'd say. Yeah, it is. And I think the masks have risks in and of themselves that I, I, I think are not fully appreciated. A couple of them are that, it, at least in my observation, it's just a hunch, People seem to be willing to get closer to one another when they're wearing masks. And really, we know that the virus is spread by prolonged and close contact. And the last thing we want to do is encourage people to get closer to one another. But the only place I spend a lot of time are grocery stores. And I do notice that when people are with masks, people seem to, I don't, I don't want to say they're letting their guard down. They just seem more willing to get close to one another. So I think that's a problem. The other thing is if you're touching your face more, uh, playing around with it. Most people don't even wear them properly. You know, you go to places and you see there, you've got, or I shouldn't say most, many people don't wear them properly mm-hmm. and they're, they're covering, you know, their, their noses are exposed. I, I, don't, I don't want to belabor it too much because I think the answer really is with we don't know the extent to which wearing masks by the public will 
potentially slow this spread. What I believe is that it won't affect the, the long-term and ultimate course, which is, is going to require sufficient numbers of people to become immune, either through infection or vaccines, potentially. Well, let's, yeah, let's, uh, let's talk about vaccines. Uh, there's about 160 in development, about 20 that have started human testing, according to the WHO, and uh, a few that are showing promise, as has been reported, including the uh, one under development by the Oxford AstraZeneca group. As you've been uh, keeping up with uh, the uh, progress of these various groups trying to, uh, again, going through the trials to uh, get to a, a, a vaccine that could be used in the general public, what's your assessment of how close we are? Because there's a lot of optimism, including from the president, about the prospect of a vaccine and the prospect of a vaccine coming to market on a unprecedented uh, timeline. The president's right, and and I think he deserves a lot of credit for pushing forward. The study that came out of Oxford was encouraging in that there there were 500 people tested with that, and I think 500 with the meningeal vaccine, so with their new vaccine and and the meningeal vaccine. And I I guess all developed antibodies, and there were very there were there were no serious reactions. Moderna has had very positive results as well, and I've seen recruitment in the Cleveland area for. people to participate in trials. What I would say is, is that let's say, for example, we have a significant trial population, which isn't going to be, you know, millions of people, but thousands of people. I guess the experts doing about 30,000 around the world. And we run that trial and we've got some good evidence uh, for, um, you know, by early next year, uh, which which is ambitious. I guess the problem is, is what What's it going to take to immunize or vaccinate 300 million people? And that's a different issue than having a a vaccine ready. So we may be able to vaccinate some susceptible populations, which would minimize death. And I think that would be great. The idea that we're going to get rid of the vaccine this way, I think it's moving fast. and, And truthfully, I think it's going to burn itself out ultimately when enough people get infected. And, and it's kind of a race between having people get infected and getting the vaccine ready. And maybe certain populations groups will be able to, to the, the highest risk people, for example, maybe we'll have something that we'll be able to save lives with. Before we let you go in, in one paragraph or less, is there any reason that kids should not be back in school at the K through 12 level? Well, the argument for, uh, not being back in school would be that they're going to transmit the virus to uh, parents and others. I, I think there, I think there's definitely that possibility. So I don't, I'm not one who believes that they can't get it or that they can't transmit it. They don't get sick. In fact, we've seen some uh, some situations where in camps, for example, where the parents are getting sick and the kids have no symptoms. But I think I think the the larger point is most of the parents of young children are also young. I think we need to keep the grandparents away. We need to keep people who are at risk away from these children until, uh, you know, until they're tested and they've had a certain window where they're where they're over it. There's no question they can spread it, but the risk to the children and the disruption to society are too great to, to keep people home. So we live with all kinds of risks. We live with influenza. We live with other diseases. And I think that the balance of, of the public policy determination needs to take into account many different facets, not just whether or not a person gets sick or whether some people, and they will, some people will die from this. 
we need to we need to we need to uh, approach it rationally uh, based on uh, relative risks and uh, and and potential uh, outcomes uh, in, of many kinds, including the the learning and the, the psychology and development of children. He is Dr. Roger Klein, expert with the Regulatory Transparency Project's FDA and Health Working Group, former director of molecular oncology at the Cleveland Clinic and former advisor to the FDA, CDC, CMS, and HHS. Dr. Klein, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. A uh, Wall Street Journal NBC News poll on race relations that uh, was posted yesterday finds uh, nearly... Three quarters of Americans, 71 percent, believe race relations are either very or fairly bad, which is a 16 point increase since February. Nearly 60 percent of those surveyed said black people face discrimination. Just over half said so of Hispanics. That doubles from the percentages a decade ago. And then the partisan divide. An overwhelming majority of Democrats, 90 percent, said black people are discriminated against. Twenty six percent of Republicans agreed. Eighty-two uh, percent of Democrats believe America is racist. Thirty percent of Republicans do. So, if America is racist, according to eighty percent of Democrats, but it's not, according to seventy percent of Republicans, is that a chasm that can be that can be crossed? Are, are those civil war numbers, regardless of what happens on November third? To help us answer that question, we're pleased to be joined by Maj Ture. He is out of Philadelphia. He's a political activist and rapper. He's also the founder of Black Guns Matter. Maj, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. What's up, Dan? Happy to be here. Uh, what about those uh, numbers about uh, in terms of Democrats versus Republicans and their view of America as uh, essentially a racist country or not? Do, do you think that spells bad news for civil cohesion? Um, so it's two things to that. One, it's, it's a balancing act. Yes, America has had racist practices. No one can deny that. If to, de- to deny that is like saying, like, like you, you sound like a flat earther. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, okay. It, it's clear. Like, like slavery, red Jim Crow. Yeah, sure. Laws, yeah, of course. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. so I think there's layered in that conversation. But So I think that both sides suffer from, one side suffers from ignoring that history to heal it. And I think the other side, which is probably, you know, identified as, as for these purposes, would be the Republican side. And the left highlights it and also doesn't do the healing. Um, right, right now, we're dealing in a level of extremes. Um, so it's, it's no different than some of my friends saying, like, yo, man, that white dude stared at you crazy. He was racist. It's like, no, bro. He, when I, I left around the corner, he asked for my autograph because he's a fan of the work we do at Black Guns Matter. Some of his perceptions. <laughs> Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so, yeah. uh, so that's why the, the balance for me is just what's the policy? Is the policy something like gun control? We can clearly identify how that was rooted in, in actual racism, you know, but like somebody wearing a, like a MAGA hat, like you calling them a racist for that reason, like, no, nah, I can't give it that way. So it's, it's both sides dealing with extremes, and that's why we have to make sure that we're harder on balance, extremely balanced, you know, extreme disease, extreme treatment. 
what about uh, what, what what does the healing then entail uh, both perspectives you know what what do republicans need to do i mean i don't think republicans are are afraid to acknowledge that slavery existed that jim crow laws existed and those were terrible things so what is it that uh, republicans need to do to do a better job of uh, extending an olive branch of of promoting racial cohesion and 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 understanding and tolerance so two or three things one we can stop pretending like there weren't policies that changed out of Jim Crow and those things. We like to say that racism is so far away. We got to stop pretending like they, they didn't morph into policies. Redlining and uh, is one clear-cut example of it. That's not like something that happened like 150 years ago. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It did, but then the policy shifted. You have to start it when you want to understand something. To my friends on the right, you got to go to the origin, the natural genesis, and watch the you know like the breakdown of it, how it evolved. You know, how it changes, how, how the statistics currently are an offshoot of that. So when you say, so, for example, uh, thir- they say 13 percent of black people or 13 percent of the population, they create 50 percent of the, 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 the quote unquote, they break the law, 50 percent of the crime. Never mind the fact that it's just a lot if a lot of that is for, um, you know, like cannabis. Right. And if the origin of cannabis prohibition in America was a guy literally saying, you know, I think cannabis makes white women want to sleep with negro jazz musicians and then there's policy (laughs) out of that like literally like not even figuratively then there's policy out of that then a bunch of black dudes are going to jail for weed and that's added to the crime stat you got to look at the racism in that now does that mean that like every white dude's walking around as a republican is racist hell no nor does that mean that white dudes or black people that are republicans should be paying for the sins of the father per se no but you have to acknowledge that it's not just some far off far-fetched ideological thing that just happens only in people's minds it has also been backed up by policy every single time that bigotry has made it to legislation it's because of the state and republicans can stop being rhinos right my my friends i love you guys us i love us on the right however but a lot of times we're republicans in name only and we're not being as conservative as we used to be or should be, or pretend to be. So that's one of the ways amen. that can create a- amen, you know to, amen to that. And when we come back with Amaj Ture, I want to get uh, his uh, critique of the left and what the left isn't doing that could be promoting uh, racial healing as well. Maj Ture, political activist, rapper, founder of Black Guns Matter. More with Maj. She my Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back. We're talking to Maj Ture. He's a political activist and rapper out of Philadelphia. He's the founder of Black Guns Matter. And Maj, before the break, we were talking about... uh, the fail, you were talking about the failures of both the right and the left when it comes to promoting racial tolerance and uh, healing and social cohesion. And I want to get your perspective on the left, particularly as I'm observing what's happening uh, in in uh, some with with some of the uh, civil unrest in major cities. And like over the weekend in Chicago, when a big group of people tried to take down the Columbus statue in Grand Park, the thing I noticed was a, a smattering of Black Lives Matter signage. And a whole lot of white kids that were there. And I I just wonder if you see the same thing on the left, that it's sort of Black Lives Matter is in part being culturally appropriated by uh, white Marxists. It absolutely is. The organization Black Lives Matter, as it started from the Ferguson movement, huge shouts to Darren Seals and the guys down there in Ferguson 
that we're fighting against and highlighting genuine social issues that our country does have. That is not what Black Lives Matter Incorporated has morphed into. So now you got really, really rich, really wealthy people, just like they do, right, piggybacking on black people's struggles, piggybacking on it, and then co-opting. And that's one of the key points of politics that I want some of our friends on the left to understand. Co-opt or kill. Now, if you if you identify as the left, if you rank and file, you might be have a, a you know a Geppetto string attached to you. <laughs> you know when you when you go to peaceably protest, and that you know that soy latte kid with the pink hair drops off a bunch of bricks for you and your friends to just randomly throw. That is a setup. That is a setup. So what the left can do, I'm talking about rank and file. The people that are on the left that are in political advantageous and um, leadership positions that have an agenda. I'm not talking to them. They're not going to listen to me anyway. Our brothers and sisters on the left have to recognize that your fight for these basic human rights that are codified in the Bill of Rights are already there. You already have them. You have to execute them, learn them, and execute them. You need to recognize when your movement for genuine things, so whether you call that social change, you know, political change, economic change, those are legitimate, right? You have to recognize when you're being geppettoed. And right now, the movement that I agree with of Black Lives Matter, the movement, the general white people can get down with that. Like, yo, we have a history of some problems and recognizing it in, in its policy that has been negatively impacting our melanated American brothers and sisters. Everybody can get behind that, right? But when our, that type of movement is co-opted and redirected for Marxist ideology, the, my, our brothers and sisters on the left have to cut that head, cut that head right off and stop it dead in its tracks. Because what will happen is your movement that was legit, right, for real issues, genuine change, starts to look like you're just about knocking over sneaker stores and getting a new pair of LeBrons out of it. And that's not what this was about. There's been, you know, a bunch of videos of people, you know, a lot of times our women have been very, you know, white and black women have been in that conversation and saying, yo, we didn't ask you to come break these windows. We didn't, you don't even live here. You know, so that's one of the areas that can control that narrative because right now the biggest uh, devil in the midst of this is the media telling everyone on both quote unquote sides that, yeah, everything that black life, everything that's wrong uh, is being done. And the genuine need for change and healing is not happening because it's being, you know, co-opted by those guys. So that's, that's what they can do on the left. They can identify the interlopers and execute, not execute in a negative way, like in a real yes, way. Yes, right. But execute, yeah, execute their involvement in the movement, and then we'll start to see some progress. And get rid of those politicians that are down with it. They're using every single update line about COVID. Shouts to people that have lost one from genuine cases of COVID. I want to say that. But they're lying about everything to A, get their team, the blue team, to win, not getting America or Americans and humanity to win. So you got to check those interlopers and you got to check those uh, po political leaders that are just using you, you know, for a political fodder, for lack of a better term. So when a de Blasio commissions a Black Lives Matter mural, uh, you see that as an important symbol or you see that as abject pandering? I see it as pandering. I'll give you a perfect example. Every business around the country, for fear or not, black, you ain't spent a dollar in a black community. You know what I mean? You, I don't know how many people you hire, you know, from, the, from that same urban demographic, right? It's like, it's like it's the Passover out here. Everybody's smearing Black Lives Matter on their businesses, hoping that they'll get passed over yeah. in these types of things. Yeah. But here's the question. Those symbols, 
for each individual business's reason. That's why symbolism, I'm not a fan of it. That's why I'm not tripping over the American flag, whether you kneel, whether you stand, cool. Are you applying the principles that that flag is supposed to stand for? That's more important to me. The substance is more important than the symbolism. So all of these Black Lives Matter posters and, yeah, black people need it, like Black Lives Matter painted in front of Trump Tower and in D.C. One state has ended qualified immunity, Colorado. That's substance. Hey, some of this being immune to being sued for doing the wrong thing. No, we don't like that. Accountability. But this whole conversation was about police brutality. And a part of that being ending, I mean, based on their saying what they want, which is, I agree with certain levels of ending qualified immunity, right? Everything has layers and shades, but out of all of the country and all of the Black Lives Matter t-shirts and face masks being sold, one state has actually done something that has to do with legislation and getting uh, substanti- substantial uh, change in policy. So no, that is unmitigated pandering to make it seem like you care, but this is the same person that will add for more gun control and lock black men up, not for robbing, but just having a firearm. It's a contradiction of the highest order, and it's a waste of everybody's time and paint. And what and paint and what about uh, uh, the whole defund the police movement? Uh, you've had uh, Berkeley, California, now uh, outsourcing uh, traffic stops to unarmed uh, city workers, and of course the budget cutting that's going on in big cities and and even in Minneapolis, voting to reimagine police altogether. I'm in alignment with limited government, so I'm in a weird space here because I know law enforcement officers that go outside, family members that go outside and say, I'm not writing no tickets, bro. I'm catching robbers, rapists, and unjustified killers, like crimes with actual victims, right? whether they're detectives or not, right? So I think that the government, we have over-militarized our police state. We went from peace officers to law enforcement. He is Maj Ture, political activist and rapper out of Philly. Founder of Black Guns Matter. Maj, where can people get uh, more info about Black Guns Matter? They can hit us on social media. Uh, my name's Ma- on Twitter, M-A-J-T-O-U-R-E. Same thing as uh, Instagram, as well as GoFundMe.com forward slash Black Guns Matter. Maj Ture, Black Guns Matter. Maj, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Peace. Take care. This is what it sounds like. Listen, the more you'll know, this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the show. Following up on our conversation with Maj Ture, Black Guns Matter. White people with Black Guns Matter, too. This is the case of Mark and Patricia McCloskey, the couple that defended their home in St. Louis, during a uh, Black Lives Matter slash the whole panoply of agitators that were uh, trespassing on private property, their private drive, damaged a gate, according to pictures that were presented by the McCloskeys to authorities. So vandalism, that's still a criminal offense. And uh, just flourished their weapons, even inartfully and unsafely, admittedly. Uh, not a necessarily McCloskey's fan. You know, these are trial lawyers. Uh, and on the show, we've documented just how litigious Mr. McCloskey is. But uh, that's whose rights are the most difficult to defend, the people that you're disinclined to like, because the McCloskeys, as with every law-abiding citizen, is entitled to 
they are entitled to the full complement of their constitutional rights, including their right to self-protection under the Second Amendment. This is what Maj Ture was talking about. And uh, a political prosecution is what we're talking about now. The St. Louis Circuit Court attorney, Kim Gardner, filed charges against the couple. They have both been charged with unlawful use of a weapon slash flourishing their weapon. That's the unlawful use. Well, uh, the Missouri State Attorney General, Eric Schmidt, uh, reacting to uh, the charges filed, said this. The right to keep and bear arms is given the highest level of protection in the Missouri Constitution and our laws, which I'm charged with protecting. This includes the Missouri Castle Doctrine, which provides broad rights to Missourians to protect and defend their personal safety and property against those who wish to do them harm. And yet, in the wake of radical calls to defund the police, and with rates of violent crime skyrocketing each day, the St. Louis Circuit Attorney filed suit against the St. Louis couple who, according to published reports, say they were doing just that, defending the safety of their family and their private property. Enough is enough. As Missouri's chief law enforcement officer, I simply will not stand by while Missouri law is being ignored. That's why I'm entering this case and seeking the dismissal of this case to protect the rights of Missourians to defend themselves and their property under Missouri's Castle Doctrine. A political prosecution such as this one would have a chilling effect on Missourians exercising their right to self-defense. The law in Missouri is clear and must be protected. We're in the middle of a crisis of violence in our major cities here in Missouri, including in St. Louis. My office is committed to working with law enforcement, state and federal partners, and community leaders to protect our communities, combat violence, and defend our citizens. We should focus our attention on that, not these kinds of divisive decisions, not based on the law. May God bless you, and may God bless the great state of Missouri. Yeah, this is the show me the man and I'll show you the crime Soviet style justice system that uh, Kim Gardner down there is attempting to uh, impose. Anders Walker is a St. Louis University law professor, constitutional law professor. He agrees with the attorney general. There was no right to protest on their street being a private street. The protesters were actually trespassing and thus the McCloskey's uh, defense of their private property is covered by the state's castle doctrine. Those charges should be dismissed, and we'll be watching this case. This is Dan Frost. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Again, follow us, danproftshow.com, on social media, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. In September of 2016, our next guest wrote... The election of 2016 is a test, in my view, the final test of whether there is any virtue left in what used to be the core of the American nation. If they cannot rouse themselves simply to vote for the first candidate in a generation who pledges to advance their interests and to vote against the one who openly boasts that she will do the opposite. Then they are doomed. They may not deserve the fate that will befall them, but they will suffer it regardless. Uh, Those were the words of Michael Anton in his uh, now uh, memorable Flight 93 election uh, commentary, one of the most important commentaries of the 2016 campaign cycle. And uh, Michael Anton went to work in the State Department for President Trump for a time after his election. 
and he continues to write over at the Claremont Review of Books, a very interesting thinker who had uh, a real sense of what the choice was in 2016. So who better than to give us a sense of what the choice is in 2020 and how similar it may be to the choice in 2016? Do we have to answer the same question again? Michael Anton is a lecturer and research fellow at Hillsdale College, senior fellow at the Claremont Institute, and as I said, former national security official in the Trump administration. Michael, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hi, thanks. Just a small correction. I actually never was at the State Department. I was at the White House the whole time. Oh, the White House. I'm, I'm yeah. sorry. I'm sorry. I knew yeah. you were in the national security space. I, I misspoke. Yeah. My bad. Um, so uh, so 2016, I read your words. That was the that was the framing. Is 2020 a reframing of that frame? Unfortunately, it is. I think people want to hear a different answer. They want to hear me say no, you know. Uh, or they want to say, well, it must be con- you know, contradictory. Not every election can be the most important election. But unfortunately, American politics are in a period where these are um, you know, kind of all or nothing struggles. And it, it shouldn't be this way. You know, politics should never be this way. Politics should be about give and take, compromise, rule and ruling in turn. And I don't get that sense at all. And now, you know, again, I have to be uh, unfortunately, somewhat partisan here. It's more. It's typical for people to say, "Well, both sides are to blame." You know, um, if everybody calmed down, things would get better. That may be true in the abstract sense. It may even be partially true in this sense. But overwhelmingly, uh, in the present circumstance, one side is to blame, and that's the left side, which uh, has, as far as I can tell, no moderation in them at all these days. They want everything. They want total power. They want to crush their enemies. They want to remake and fundamentally transform the country. And if you stand in their way, you're, uh, you're a bad person. That's essentially where they are. Yeah, it would, seem, and, it would seem to me that the words you wrote in 2016, it's the same question. It's, uh, it's actually uh, even uh, uh, more pressing, that question about whether or not there's any virtue left, because we did not have clearly the sort of uh, government expansion because of a virus that uh, in the lead up to 2016, as well as the sanctioned violence in major urban centers that we do in advance of November 2020. No, we don't have any of that. And we've also, um, the events of 2020 have exposed a lot of things. It's exposed also a kind of a really disturbing lack of will on the part of political leaders who should know better and should who take oaths to enforce laws and protect citizenry and who really aren't living up to those oaths in, in so 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 many cases. I think what you've seen with the virus too is is extremely important. Um, you know, all governments recognize, or all ones that function and last recognize the possibility of emergency situations in which emergency measures have to be taken for the public good, but they. Uh, the good the good governments are extremely reluctant to to invoke such powers and use such powers, and when they do, they tend to end them as soon as possible. Well, we're seeing kind of the opposite now, where these powers are being invoked all over the place in ambiguous situations uh, without any reference to the rule of law. You know, you had a famous interview with the governor of New Jersey was asked by Tucker Carlson, yeah. were you worried about the constitutional issues? And he said, no, I didn't even think about it. It was above my pay grade. So they, they sort of acknowledge, yeah, well, this violates the Constitution, what we're doing, but, uh, you know, who cares? And they, and, they, and they don't seem to be in any hurry to surrender these powers. In fact, I, I sense the opposite, that, oh, we have a new normal now, and while having asserted control, we can continue to maintain control indefinitely. Isn't this great? Um, this is all very disturbing, upsetting, should be worrisome to everyone, especially given that, uh, look, I'm no uh, expert on 
viruses, pathologies, or whatever, in the February-March time frame, I was willing to believe the worst because I didn't know. But we have to be honest with ourselves and admit that most of the worst predictions that the super alarmists on cable TV were giving us back in the, in the early spring didn't come true. And I'm not saying this thing isn't deadly, it isn't dangerous, it's harmless. None of that's true. It's obviously dangerous, it's obviously harmful, it's a virus after all. But what we have done is reorder our society fundamentally and curtail our rights in a, in a way that some people in this society who want to be permanent over a thing that is not nearly as dangerous as it was made out to be, which leads one to believe that we were just being lied to all along. Uh, that, right. that, you know, this, this was the plan, right? The plan was to scare the hell out of everybody, lock down the country, reassert power, and then never give up the power. Because that's what the, the left understands. It's, it's sort of like uh, once you and, uh, you know, Milton Friedman, nothing is so permanent as a temporary government program. We just need to get the program off the ground, then it'll exist forever. We just need to set the precedent here in, in our response to the virus, and then we can always use that precedent again. Yeah, that's the way it's looking. And, you know, I'd, I'd like to see, uh, you know, fear, fear is effective in the sense that, you know, nobody, nobody wants to get sick and die and nobody wants their loved ones to get sick and die. And so if you tell people uh, and you guilt and shame them into saying, you know, you will be responsible for your lo- loved one's death or your neighbor's death if you, if you go outside and you live your life, people are sensitive on that score. They want to do the right thing. But the sort of brute force propaganda that you see from every element of government and every element of the media and the so-called scientific establishment. Uh, and, and these people get caught in contradictions all the time. They say X one day, they say Y the next day, they say not X the third day. Remember when we weren't supposed to wear masks? Yeah, right. Because, and now everyone's supposed to be required to wear a mask everywhere. And if you point out any of these, it's like the debate on climate change. I'm not a scientist there either, but I'm a logician in a certain sense. And I can tell when somebody has told me that one thing one day and then complete opposite the next day and then yells at me for pointing out the, con- the I can tell that. Any fool can tell that. You don't have to be trained in science to know when you're being lied to. Well, isn't there something else that's gone on over the last uh, three years uh, since the 2016 election, four years now, which is the continued degradation of all of our civic and cultural institutions, the continued delegitimization uh, such that um, uh, there it has to be a reckoning, and that reckoning hasn't come yet. You've just seen a continuing uh, polarization, a continuing delegitimization, as I said, but but not a reckoning. And so the reckoning is still in the offing. Well, I don't know. I don't know what's coming. Um, I, I I worry about it. I'm concerned about it. I think though that what I'm what I'm waiting and hoping to see that I have not seen is, as I said, some sense of moderation and circumspection from the left, the ruling class, the Democratic Party, the people in power, obviously, the Trump accepted. But, it, you know, one thing the Trump uh, administration has amply demonstrated, I think I already knew this, but I hope that there's no one left who can deny it, is, you know, how little power a, a president or even an entire administration really has when every other element of national power is against him, right. when the universities and the media and the corporations and the banks and ba- basically every other commanding height or power center in the country is actively and, and his own bureaucracy, his own government that he's nominally in charge of on paper. But, you know, when he tries to give orders, I don't know what percentage of his orders are followed and which aren't, but a giant percentage of them just simply aren't. You know, there's a resistance inside the government, as we know of. So. Uh, it's, it's, it's really, really hard to govern the country uh, w- with that. And, and so when I say the 
all of the powers that be aren't moderating. You know, I usually get this sophistic rejoinder. Well, Trump's the president. He's the one in power. So who are you really criticizing? Oh, you know, give me a break. That's really all I have to say to that. <laughs> um, I, don't see, I don't see any sign of moderation from these people. They have their foot on the pedal. They have it down to the floor. And no matter what happens, how many statues fall, how many riots, how many people get killed, how many businesses go out of business forever, how many you know, people uh, are harmed, how many kids are harmed by having to stay home from school, all of these things that are really incredibly damaging, I don't see any sense that they're saying, all right, enough, let's ease off, back off, and try to get some semblance of normal. They're just pressing hard and that's why i think what you would you i can't remember the word you used a reckoning or a, that yeah. wasn't it uh, yeah uh, yeah yeah uh it, it's i just think it's coming or it might be and if it does it'll be because they could not bring themselves to slow down and moderate and compromise in any way uh when we come back i i, w- I just want to get uh, uh more of your take on where the the race is right now and and sort of the the framing of that some some specific choices before President Trump. More with Michael Anton, lecturer and research fellow at Hillsdale College, senior fellow at the Claremont Institute. Right after. Under pressure. Under pressure. Pressure. Listen to podcasts of the show at danproffshow.com. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Michael Anton. He is the author of the uh, famous Flight 93 election commentary uh, from September of 2016 that really framed the choice that the American people made in November of 2016 to vote President Trump into office, the idea that virtue and any anything left of American virtue uh, was uh, on the ballot in November of 2016. And it is again in 2020, he argues. He's a lecturer and research fellow at Hillsdale College, senior fellow at the Claremont Institute, former national security official in the Trump administration. And we were we're talking about um, the choice of sort of the handle civilization versus not civilization in 2020. To some extent, the lack of moderation from the left, you were referencing. And so when it comes to a choice like insinuating himself into what are largely local affairs, law enforcement in big cities that are beset by rioting uh, and have been for the last couple of months intermittently, uh, in Portland's case, uninterrupted uh, and what the president should do. He has dispatched federal law enforcement to Kansas City, to Portland. It's coming to Chicago this week. And Selena Zito argues in the New York Post he, he needs to do that, that he needs to be seen as the law and order guy in substance, as leading the quelling of this disruption, the violence, the looting, the rioting going on in American cities. And there are others that say if these leftist mayors uh, in the big cities of America want to tell Trump to go pound sand, we got it, then he should wash his hands of it and say, OK, well, you got it. And then that frames the choice even more so in November of you can either have their America or the America I want for you. Yeah, so I'm about to commit the worst sin that the subject of an interview can commit that I've been told over and over again. You know, the one thing you never say is, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Don't express an opinion. So you've given me an A or a B. I I can see this both ways, Mm -hmm. right? It certainly looks, 
his his job, the oath that he takes, is to support, protect, and defend our constitution and our laws, which are being violated with impunity in places. It 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 is bad for the country. It's bad for these cities. It's bad for the citizens who get harmed in these riots. That that nothing is done. The fact that these mayors are incapable or unwilling doesn't relieve the president of his opportunities, etc. Plus, on just purely the political sense, it looks weak to be in charge nominally, the president, and either not be willing or not be able to do anything about it. On the other hand, um, I just, it's going to be very difficult for the feds alone to restore order in a zone that doesn't want order, whose local governments don't, don't seem to want order, where the entire citizenry is so passionately opposed to the president. I mean, think about this for a second, right? You know, Portland didn't vote for Trump in 2016. They're not going to vote for Trump in 2020. I don't know what the percentages are at the top of my head, but it's something like 85% liberal Democrat or leftist Democrat or Antifa Democrat or whatever you want to call them in Portland. They're destroying their own city in a temper tantrum. They're not going to take – they're not sticking it to, to, to Oklahoma or someplace where, you know, Trump's – one of Trump's strongholds. They're, this is akin to somebody unhappy with the way things are going, burning down his own house. Now, you know, it's, it, on the political sense, I wonder what is, you know, uh, well, let me put it this way. If these people in these cities tearing them down um, see the fed, federal agents as Trump's soldiers, right, as not there to help them, but there to hurt them, then I don't know what good the feds can do, and they might end up making it worse. That is to say, not on purpose, but because of the reaction they get from people who have, in my opinion, clearly lost their minds. And, 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 and in a political sense, what I worry about is that the certain parts of the left, the provocateur parts of the left, are looking and hoping to create some kind of incident that they can capture on video to say, look at Trump's stormtroopers, right. you know, violating the rights of peaceful protesters and wave the bloody shirt and so on, and pick your metaphor. And that they're sort of double daring him to see if he can blunder in, you know, or, or uh, blunder into a situation like that inadvertently trying to do the right thing, but in effect being uh, trapped into a, into a situation that can just be used for propaganda purposes on the other side. So I've been thinking about this since it all started, and I, those, these to me are two, argue, two arguments that are so equally strong, I don't know how to choose between them. And I, 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 I feel what it must be like to be the president and have to face a decision that's this difficult. Uh, it's very, very hard. And I don't, I don't know what I would tell him in this, in this circumstance. Maybe uh, would schools be an easier one where he talked, as he talked on Sunday with Chris Wallace, about uh, withholding federal DOE funding yeah. to local school districts who don't uh, reopen uh, based on uh, no science? Because there, there you say, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's an opportunity, I think, to go back to the framing to say, look, the people who are saying defund police, that's synonymous with I'm rich and I'm insulated. The people who are saying keep the schools closed, that's synonymous yeah. with saying I'm rich and I'm isolated although, and I have choices. Although, uh, I think that you're right. That's a completely easier call. What it looks like is happening to me, reading the news and also watching the districts around where I live, is that the teachers' unions are trying to blackmail every school district they can into not having to go back to work in the fall. And they would howl and say, we do work. Well, we're working online, blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine. You'll also not suffer any consequences from this. You guys will still completely get paid. Whereas think of the horrible effect this is having on kids and on parents. My kids got basically booted out of school in March and went to all online and they were sad about it. They both enjoyed school. It's been a tough time for them. It's been kind of depressing for them. Mm -hmm. And they were looking forward to going back in the fall. As of now, around here, some, some counties, I'm in you know, the greater Washington area, or some districts have said we're going all online, and some have said we'll do some hybrid model where you'll have 
three days off and two days in school, but the unions are pressing the, those school districts who are doing a partial return model to say, no, it has to be 100% online. And in some places, like L.A. County and some other big school districts, the unions are trying to blackmail and saying, give us X, Y, and Z, give us all this money. And, and they're, even, not even, they're adding provisions that have nothing to do with schooling, like you know, defund the police to this degree and give us $250 million. And then we'll think about And then we'll think about I mean, this is, this is Democratic Party leftist intimidation tactics. I mean, the teachers unions have always been an adjunct, uh, 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 an important pillar of the Democratic coalition. But now they're using their power over people's children to extract political concessions that have nothing to do with education. And this is, you know, this is hard in that teachers, in a sense, are like congressmen. Everybody hates Congress, but they love their congressmen, mm-hmm. right? Everybody hates the unions, but, you know, when you interact with your kid's teacher who's doing a good job for your child and your child is enjoying the experience and benefiting from it, we all love those teachers. I love my kid's teachers. They've been wonderful for my kids. But the way these unions are acting is disgraceful, and it really puts the lie to the notion that this is all about the kids. I think any teacher worth his or her salt who loves her charges can't wait to get back into the classroom and is and is dying to get back in. Maybe dying is the wrong verb to use because their their threat is well we're all going to die. I don't believe that though. This is another part of the hysteria, right? Kids don't apparently aren't getting sick. Um, a lot, you know, pe- people aren't the, the the death rate is overblown. The infection rate is overblown. It's mostly affecting people who are older and have pre-existing conditions. I've read many accounts that they're overcounting the deaths. So if you go into the hospital with some chronic or terminal disease and you have COVID, they chalk it up to a COVID death, even if you died of something else. There's all kinds of funny business going around. But I think this is an easy call to say, I don't know that Trump has the power to force every local school district to go back, but he certainly has the ability to leverage them into making the right decision. And if they still, uh, after, you know, after hearing his provisions of what they will get if they go back and what they won't get if they don't go back, I think he should go ahead with that. This is a really a disaster that shortchanges America's children to, and, and only benefits a few to, to uh, you know, basically cancel another school year. He is Michael Anton. He's a lecturer and research fellow at Hillsdale College, senior fellow at the Claremont Institute and former national security official in the Trump administration. Michael, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Yesterday, President uh, Trump had a bit of a briefing that featured a preview of his priorities, really a restatement of his priorities for any possible additional COVID-19 relief legislation. He had uh, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin step up and outline those. We are committed that by the end of this month, uh, make sure that before the enhanced unemployment insurance expires, that we pass legislation so that we can protect Americans that are unemployed. And we've said the number one issue is we have to fix the technical fix on enhanced unemployment. We're going to make sure that we don't pay people more money to stay home than go to work. We want to make sure that people who can go to work safely can do so. We'll have tax credits that incentivize businesses to bring people back to work. We'll have tax credits for PP&E, for safe work environment. And we're going to have big incentives 
money to the states for education for schools that can open safely and and do education. So these are the priorities, as well as liability protection. We want to make sure that frivolous lawsuits don't prevent schools, universities, and businesses from reopening. I love the uh, the phrase technical glitch to the enhanced unemployment, paying people more to not work than to work, and thus having people be a bit lethargic about going back to work until they're not paid more not to work. That's a technical glitch. No, that was an obvious one. It wasn't uh, some gizmo failed on a machine. It was just poorly thought out incentive structure you're presenting to people. And perhaps some of that continues for uh, a little bit of a discussion on competing visions for the American economy, short term and medium term. We're pleased to be joined by Allison Schrager, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, co-founder of the risk advisory firm Lifecycle Finance Partners and author of An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. I can't wait to hear how that ends. Allison, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi, thanks for having me. Secretary Mnuchin outlined, uh, including the quote-unquote technical fix that's required to enhance unemployment benefits. Is that is that directionally where we should be going policy-wise to uh, provide the proper incentives to job creators in America? Yeah, I think so. Back in March when they were debating the CARES Act, we were in a very different world. You know, you wanted no one to go to work. Providing an incentive not to work made some sense. But now we're in a different world. We're trying to live with this virus. We're trying to get people back to work, have companies reopen. So it becomes more important. It's, it's a tough trade-off because we still have really elevated unemployment, and we probably will for the time being. The thing is you want to get that balance right of encouraging people to go back to work, but also give people out of a job the support they need so demand doesn't totally collapse. So the right solution might be something in the middle, reducing that extra bonus and phasing it out over time. There's something else that was included in the Families First Coronavirus Response Act uh, that uh, hasn't gotten a lot of attention, if any, actually. But uh, if you read it, up to an additional 10 weeks of paid expanded family and medical leave at two-thirds the employee's regular pay of rate, where an employee who has been employed for at least 30 calendar days is unable to work due to a bona fide need for a leave to care for a child whose school or child care provider is closed or unavailable for reasons related to COVID-19. Well, now as we're getting a lot of schools that are not reopening or doing virtual uh, education only or doing some sort of hybrid a couple of days a week, all of a sudden you have another problem for employers who could have this provision in the uh, the first uh, coronavirus relief legislation triggered where they're paying two-thirds of employees their salary if they want to keep them on the payroll to not work because they have to stay at home and take care of kids who aren't in school. Yeah, of course. I mean, there also could be an advantage of that. Of, you know, if you do send your kids back to school and they get sick, you don't want an incentive to send them to school anyway. So, I mean, it, you can debate who, who should pay for that benefit, but there are benefits to ensuring that if your child is sick with coronavirus, you don't err on the side of sending them to school anyway because you have to go to work. Well, well, right. But I mean, this doesn't it's not a sick child that you get the 10 weeks. It's just a child whose school or child care provider is uh, closed. So this seems to me like it's a you know, it's it's tantamount to another unfunded government mandate on the private individual, the private family, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. Of course, you know, you, you do, if schools are open, you know, it's it's not, you know, it's only 10 weeks of what that you get this benefit for. Mm. So, I mean, I guess, you know, it, eventually people would have to send their kids back to school. Um, 
so it might not be the worst thing in it, but there's also if schools open, no clear reason for it anyhow, except you do said do want to keep the incentives there that you don't miss out on pay if you do have to stay home with your child if they're sick. Uh, when we come back with Allison Schrager, I want to get to uh, the piece that you wrote, uh, city-journal.org for the Manhattan Institute, on uh, the uh, stakeholder capitalism uh, that uh, Joe Biden is advocating for in his recently unveiled economic plan and some of the other provisions that uh, he and Comrade Bernie have put out as part of their combined manifesto. More with Allison Schrager, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, co-founder of the risk advisory firm Lifecycle Finance Partners and author of An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. We'll be back right after this. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back we're speaking with allison schrager she's a senior fellow at the manhattan institute co-founder of the risk advisory firm life cycle finance partners that is and author of the book an economist walks into a brothel and uh, Allison, uh, you picked up on um, some phrasing in Vice President Joe Biden's economic plan that was unveiled last week that not a lot of people picked up on because it's so focused on what he's actually proposing with respect to uh, a uh, Green New Deal and, uh, and other matters on specific parts of our economy. But this idea that we need to put an end to shareholder capitalism, as he termed it, and in, instead embrace stakeholder capitalism, you uh, recoiled at that a bit. Why? kind of not a great idea. The idea of moving away from shareholder capitalism is what they call stakeholder capitalism. Shareholder capitalism is just that corporations' main objective should be maximizing the value of shareholders, which just means profit, right? Because that's what shareholders care about. So the idea is that because they only care about shareholders, the greedy capitalists and their money, they're not thinking enough about the environment or community or either their workers, all these other things. The idea is like, let's bring, let's make corporations think about everything, or as Biden said, their community in the whole country. And this could take the form of like what they have in Germany, which is having labor represented on the board, community representatives on the board. Like it could mean a lot of things, but as you can see, this is sort of just not sounding like a great idea. I mean, first of all, like, how do you measure benefits to all these different people? Uh, so, I mean, there's not, you know, the great thing about shareholder capitalism, it's really easy to measure that objective. You know, it's like, look at your stock price. You, you look at, you know, your shareholders. This, this is fairly easy. Once you're accountable for more people, you're just accountable to no one. And it's also not entirely clear that any issues we have with corporations are going to be fixed by adding more people to the table. I mean, if you look at the history of labor unions, they're not exactly, you know, the most thoughtful either about thinking about long-term health of the company, as we've seen from the demanding really unsustainable retirement and health benefits. I mean, that might look good to them in the short run, but it really undermines the company's viability in the long run because we know it has a job. Well, and also, um, how do you decide which stakeholders get seats at the table and uh, who exactly represents the seat that's devoted to the environmental concern or to the uh, whatever racial harmony concern or whatever else that you want, uh, you know, whatever else you want represented at the table in terms of considerations? You know, is there some sort of government list of organizations and their representatives who are uh, approved to have these seats at the table to represent uh, uh, the stakeholder position on these issues? Exactly. I mean, it's like, you know, how much is an environmental activist 
it, you know, needs count more than a shareholder. I mean, it's all, I mean, I, I, I sometimes think this is just something people say to sound good. And it's incredibly popular to say stakeholder capitalism is what we should all think about. Because who's going to argue with the fact that corporations should care about the world? I mean, that sounds wonderful. But, you know, it, it, in practice, it actually makes no sense. As you say, it opens up all these political considerations, undermines the company to stay in business. And to be honest, it's not clear that uh, shareholder capitalism, say the maximization of profits, is necessarily um, sort of orthogonal to the interests of the community or the country. I mean, we all benefit from profitable companies. Right. I mean, first of all, yeah. more than 50% of Americans own stock. Exactly. I mean, you meant, you, a, yeah, you just meant, I was just going to go to the, the place you were before talking about pension benefits. How about my 401k the, for the middle income worker for uh, you know those that, are, that that own equities or mutual funds that are investing to help uh, buttress Social Security for their retirement. They're pretty interested in profitability. Yeah, as you said, more than fifty percent of Americans own stock. So, I mean, we are. If you say you know we need to care about the community and country, that are, those are shareholders too. It, it doesn't it also and 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 again to be um, even handed about this, I have the same criticism of Marco Rubio's common good capitalism construct which is it starts from uh, a negative premise about free markets, which is that somehow they're rapacious, uh, that businesses are um, have uh, ill motivations that need to be tempered by government and, you know, and, and, and sort of transcendental uh, common good interests. When in point of fact, a business is a service organization. If you don't serve your customer, then you don't stay in business. So actually incentives are quite nicely aligned between provider and consumer. Yes. And if it's, corporation is evil and exploits its workers, it's not like going to stay in business for very long. I mean, people care about these things. I mean, we see, you know, these ESG funds that, you know, mean if you're in that fund and your stock prices can go higher if you're seen as socially responsible. You also benefit from having productive, loyal, happy workers. So, you know, exploiting your workers is not a long-term business strategy. <laughs> right. Right. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it stands to reason. I mean, it sounds rather pedestrian, but... Um... The pedestrian is revolutionary these days, I suppose. Um, I wanted to get your take on uh, uh, something else, too, whether or not uh, America's innovation engine is slowing. And if so, the responsible party, there's an Atlantic piece out this week that suggests, of course, Trump is the responsible party. And uh, the evidence of the slowing innovation engine in America is uh, the flow of talented people from overseas slowing the university hubs that produce basic research are in financial turmoil. Well, I mean, again, the shutdown was hardly just Trump's call uh, or, or just supported by Trump. The circulation of people and ideas in high productive industrial culture cultures, clusters, excuse me, such as Silicon Valley has been impeded. And so the last thing we should do right now is uh, have antagonism between federal and particular big city governments where so much uh, uh, human capital resides. Um, do, do you agree with that? Uh, concern, or at least as a concern, if not a, if not a, a, a eventuality that's being visited on, uh, upon us at present. I agree with the concern, but I depart from that argument when he blames Trump or the causes of it. Um, you know, there is tons of evidence that you know we get the most innovation when we bring really talented people together in a cluster. Like, and, and you know, we're not, and you know, innovation happens in these sort of groups. Like, if you look through sort of like even like things like the Enlightenment, you have this group of great thinkers together, and they feed off each other. So it is important to have groups of talented people and get the best people from around the world together. But, you know, I, I think the causes of, you know, the stress, first of all, you know, shutting down universities, you know, was is, is not, you know, as, as you say, you know, Trump's idea. 
Um, that's certainly an issue. Um, and is it hopefully, you know, they will come back within several months. But also, I mean, one of the reasons why people aren't wanting to live in big cities like San Francisco and all gather together is the high, is the sort of the sort of this declining standards of living from large homeless population and higher crime. And also uh, the fact it's so expensive to live there from sort of an inability to move, build more housing stock. So if you want people to all cluster together, as I said, in sort of these sort of uh, innovative sort of producing communities, then you have to make it really pleasant for them to all live there. She is Allison Schrager, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, co-founder of the risk advisory firm Lifecycle Finance Partners and author of An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. Allison, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the show. Kaylee McEnany had a uh, fun hot mic moment that she may not even have caught during her press briefing this morning. This uh, question, believed to be from Paula Reed of CBS News, that's who's uh, being tagged, at least on Twitter. So uh, believed to be, I'm happy to stand corrected if it turns out not to be. Remember, because all these reporters are wearing face masks, so it's not always easy to identify. The question was about uh, mail and voting and the concerns expressed by President Trump and many others about uh, the potential for fraud. This was the reaction when Kaylee McEnany cut off the discussion. There are questions about mail, mass mail out voting. And I know you don't want to hear them, which is why you talk over me, but I encourage you to read the op-ed. Yes. On the China vaccine research, this yes. is very You've gotten two questions, which is more than some of your colleagues. Yes. Thank you, Kelly. Okay, okay, you don't mind. Um, Did you catch that? As she moved to another reporter, the reporter she was speaking with, believed to be Paul Reed from CBS News, muttered under her breath while the mic was still on, lying bitch. Well, um, that's interesting decorum in the White House press briefing room. In addition to that, uh, just on the matter of mail-in voting, we've brought you the case of the Patterson, New Jersey, all-mail-in ballot election and what a catastrophe that was. Well, we have another case study, New York. After primary night in New York, on June 23rd, Democrat Rep. Carolyn Maloney held a 648-vote lead over her progressive challenger, Suraj Patel. Uh, today, we still don't have an answer as to the winner. This is a district that covers eastern Manhattan, parts of Brooklyn and Queens. The preliminary count included about 40,000 votes, but not 65,000 absentee ballots. If mail votes uh, were postmarked by Election Day, they could arrive June 30th by June 30th and still be considered valid. Counting was put on hold until the deadline passed, but it didn't begin until July 8th because of uh, the unprecedented volume of mail, as one New York City official put it. Meantime, Patel, the challenger to Maloney, was charging voter suppression, the cannibalization of the left. Voter suppression inside the Democratic Party. Maloney called the attack a cynical abuse of voter confidence. Comes straight out of Donald Trump's playbook, blah, blah, blah. Patel is now party to a federal lawsuit filed last Friday that argues that an election law snafu, snafu may have disenfranchised a massive number of voters. Usually, New York's absentee ballots needed a stamp, but Governor Cuomo signed an order in May requiring that for the June election, voters w- would be provided with a postage-paid return envelope. Problem is, the U.S. Postal Service does not traditionally postmark prepaid envelopes. 
So despite the post office's assurance it would handle the election mail correctly, the suit claims, the federal lawsuit claims, thousands of ballots arrived in time to be counted yet lacked the necessary postmark. And now uh, the challenger is suggesting that all those that arrived in time be counted regardless of the postmark. Unofficial early data suggests that ballot rejection rates for this congressional district could hit 19% in Queens and Manhattan, 28% in Brooklyn. This after what happened in Patterson, New Jersey, where you had the local NAACP calling for a redo on the election as one-fifth of the ballots were kicked out as fraudulent that speak to those legitimate real-world concerns. This is Dan Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And that Durham report cannot come soon enough. Not just report like it's a book report but uh the recommendations for prosecutions per u.s attorney john durham recommendations he is going to make the department of justice as bill barr has spoken about intermittently over the last several weeks that is what cannot come soon enough because the drip 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 of information coming from uh congressional committees releasing this information piecemeal of the the context and backstory of documents like the Steele dossier and what the FBI knew or should have known and when it knew or should have known it and then what it did or didn't do with that information it should or should have known. And I don't mean to talk like a lawyer, but it's just uh, remarkable, actually, how brazen the FBI was and the Mueller special counsel team was in this pursuit of a complete fiction, Trump Russian collusion, complete fiction. And we have yet another example of that, thanks to some interviews that FBI agents conducted, the transcripts of which were released by the Senate Judiciary Committee last week, uh, notes taken, I should say, not transcripts, but notes taken as a result of those interviews. And uh, Eric Felton over at RealClearInvestigations.com picked up on those notes taken and uh, provided a, a nice step-by-step understanding of what we should take away from what the FBI relied on, Jim Comey's FBI relied on in terms of the Steele dossier and just how patently flimsy it was, just how and and thus just how patently flimsy was the statements that were made to the FISA court to get surveillance warrants and the basis for the counterintelligence investigation at the FBI and the special prosecutor, the independent counsel that was retained to build upon that counterintelligence investigation, which turned out to be one big three-year fishing expedition, it would seem. For more on this, please to be joined by the aforesaid Eric Felton, RealClearInvestigations.com correspondent. Eric, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Good to be here. How are you doing? Good. And so uh, <laughs> this piece, I mean, it really, it, it reads like um, some sort of parody of a Tom Clancy novel. Walk us through the Steele dossier and Christopher Steele's primary subsources and what they asserted and how this was memorialized and what the FBI took away from it in pursuit of President Trump. Okay, well, 
in February of 2017, so right at the beginning of the Trump administration, the FBI did three days of interviews with Christopher Steele's primary subsource. Now, you'd think primary subsource, this would be some somebody really connected into what's happening in Russia. Well, he's a think tank person in Washington, D.C., but originally from it's not clear whether Eastern Europe or Russia, but he's got a group of friends who are really more drinking buddies than anything. It's a social circle, not a intelligence network um, that he calls on for the information that Christopher Steele is asking for. So, for example, fairly early on in the production of the dossier, Christopher Steele asks his primary subsource, who's somebody who's simply on Christopher Steele's payroll, um, for information about Paul Manafort. The primary subsource has never heard of Paul Manafort, but he asks around to some of his drinking buddies back in Russia, and they've never heard of Paul Manafort. But that doesn't stop them from writing up all sorts of uh, suggestions that Paul Manafort is part of a criminal conspiracy with Russia. Um, and what you see in this investigation, in this interview that the FBI did, is not only that the dossier is obviously made up, but that the FBI knew it in February of 2017 from talking to the primary subsource, who was pretty frank with them about how well, I didn't. I didn't really know anything about this, and I asked so and so, and uh, and so and so, who were labeled as source one, source two, source three. Um, but again, these various sources are pretty much just his social circle back in Russia. For example, source three is a young lady with whom he had a um, uh, a relationship that's never quite. Um, uh, made specific, but um, when she would come to the U.S., she would stay with the primary subsource. He was in the habit of giving her money, and he had known her since they were in the uh, equivalent of the eighth grade together. So what are the chances that your friend from eighth grade with whom you have perhaps a romantic relationship just happens to be tapped in to um, extraordinary intelligence about what's going on in the Kremlin. It well, doesn't bear scrutiny for a second. Well, and this 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 source three that you you mentioned, too, she's apparently the source of the uh, the, the, the the fiction that Michael Cohen made this trip to Prague on behalf of President Trump. That was that's something apparently she just heard through gossip or or read on some in some, you know, Reddit chat on uh, online or something and just repurposed it. And that then became part of the official dossier. Well, it's, it's, it's even worse than that, which is you have the um, primary subsource. Uh, he's tasked by Christopher Steele at one point with getting information on five different people, but he doesn't write down the five people, and he forgets who a couple of them are. So all he can remember is that there are three names now that he's looking for, um, Carter Page, Paul Manafort, and... Michael Cohen. He has no idea who Michael Cohen is, but he goes to subsource three, his eighth grade girlfriend, um, <laughs> and asks her about uh, those three names. 
she's never heard anything about the three names, except then she says, wait, wait a second. Um, you know, Michael Cohen. Yeah, I've, I've heard of Michael Cohen. In fact, I know that he went to Prague with three henchmen and met with Russian. She starts spieling this spiel um, kind of out of nowhere. Like a, like and, a, like a John Lovitz, Tommy, uh, what was the, the, the pathological liar, Tommy Flanagan or something, too? It's like, yeah, that's the ticket. This is just making stuff up. That's the ticket. And, um, and before long, she's spun a yarn that includes all of this information about um, the, the cyber hacking that was being done and paid for and arranged out of um, Cohen in Prague, except the primary subsource tells the FBI, um, you know, but for all of that stuff in the dossier about hacking, et cetera, you know, I actually don't know anything about hacking. I don't know anything about cyber stuff. And, you know, source three, she doesn't really know much about in IT either. And so and then, and then you just to get just to get another one in here, too. You also reference a source here. Source E, an ethnic Russian mm-hmm. cl- close associate of Republican U.S. presidential candidate Donald Trump. It's reported. But that's not source. E is not a close associate of Donald Trump. No, it's it's extraordinary. He's he was told by um, the primary subsource was told by some journalists he talked to that maybe he to this guy that uh, he has an email address for. So the primary subsource sends an email, never hears back from the email, and something like three or four weeks later, he gets a phone call from a guy with a Russian accent who doesn't identify himself. The primary subsource never learns who the guy was. Um, they talked for 10 minutes, most of which was spent talking, um, you know, trying to get together uh, to have a meeting that never happens. And so here's somebody who the primary subsource doesn't know, has no idea who it is, talked at most for 10 minutes, most of which was about trying to get together to meet and never happened. He never found out who the person was, never identified this voice that just had called him out of the blue. And yet that information, when Christopher Steele wrote it down into the dossier, was all of a sudden transformed into this, speaking in confidence to a compatriot in late July 2016, Source E, an ethnic Russian close associate of Republican U.S. President candidate Donald Trump, admitted that there was a well-developed conspiracy of cooperation between them and the Russian leadership. And it goes on from there. I mean, but you just see yeah. how he is Eric Felton, RealClearInvestigations.com correspondent. I'll tweet out the uh, piece that he wrote up, the investigative piece he wrote up uh, for your perusal at Dan Prof Show. And Eric, great work. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Take care. Take care. Show.com.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Anita Padilla, who's a reporter over at Fox Chicago, received this uh, open letter to Mayor Triple Threat from a black Chicago police officer. She posted it, uh, preserving his identity, of course. Dear Mrs. Mayor, I've been a Chicago police officer for a little over 10 years now. I'm also an African-American man who grew up on the south side of Chicago, Inglewood. So the toughest neighborhood in Chicago. Unlike you, I'm a lifelong Chicagoan and pretty much know the city like the back of my hand. Growing up in Inglewood, I've had several encounters with police, bad and good, gangs and miscellaneous citizens. This open letter is not about me, though. I felt the need to express my disappointment and your genuine my disappointment and your genuine hate and lack of support that you show to the men and women of the Chicago Police Department. As a black man, I totally understand the state of the police across the country. I, too, have been beat by police in the past, profiled and even illegally searched. I, too, am also smart enough to know that not all police are bad and a lot of police actually do speak out against the bad ones. Over the last couple of years, it's almost sickening how you have treated the men and women that protect your house every time. Hundreds of protesters come and harass you, your wife, your daughter. During civil unrest over the George Floyd incident, not once did you visit any injured officers, come to districts or into the trenches or battlefield to check up on any men or women of the Chicago Police Department. He goes through the other incidents, uh, including uh, officers who were shot, the uh, blaming the Chicago police and the Bobby Rush office incident, the great popcorn caper, uh, and uh, concludes, I grew up in this city and arguably one of the worst neighborhoods in Chicago and the entire United States. I'm not political at all, and I actually agree with you that our president is and comes and can sometimes be a jackass. I'm also smart enough to know a mayor should not go on a national te- go on national television and tell him f you, and then call for a police officer to be fired for raising his middle finger at an unruly protester. Your agenda against us police officers is sickening and very discouraging. I invite you to have open discussions with officers and get to know the real officers putting in the work, not the puppets you handpick to guard your home. Uh, Miss Mayor, in the runoff, I actually gave you my vote and thought you would be the right fit. I was totally wrong. And in fact, under your reign, it's been several hundred homicides, including almost 20 under the age of 15. You've publicly humiliated your handpicked superintendent and again have showed your clear dislike for the men and women of the Chicago Police Department. Things won't change or get better until you try to make it better. Uh, We police officers have fought the good fight with you and will continue to do so without your support. God bless. That's got to be what it's like in places like Portland and Seattle and New York and Atlanta and L.A., Dallas, with police officers and the civilian political authorities. It's not a dynamic that is sustainable. So where does it go? And. Should Trump continue to do to intercede, not just threaten to intercede, as we uh, hear the report yesterday that 150 federal law enforcement officers are going to be dispatched to Chicago the way they have been to Portland and Kansas City previously. For more on this, let's uh, bring our friend Roger Kimball into the fold. Roger Kimball, editor of the new Criterion. Roger, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hello there. Uh, so with respect to, um, you know, the, the, the Trump choice, you know, Selena Zito writes in New York Post that essentially um, Trump needs to quell America's disruption. The great disruptor needs to quell the disruption. That's his path to victory. He can't just take a rhetorical position of law and order. 
Uh, do you do you agree with that, or or if you know these antagonistic mayors don't want federal help, or they're more interested in creating conspiracy theories about federal officers and and extraordinary rendition and black sites and pulling people off the streets like a Pinochet death squad, then he should just he should just leave them alone. Well, that's a, that's a very interesting question. I was talking about that very uh, that very thing with a friend uh, just yesterday. Um, basically, I think that the president does have to keep law and order, and we we can't really let cities like Portland and Chicago and 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 uh, other 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 such um, repositories of this kind of toxic culture descend into anarchy and chaos because it's you never know quite where it's going to end and the mainstream media of course is fanning the flames of of uh of this disruption and uh <clears throat> will do everything they can to make it seem as though it's the president's fault um you know it's the same thing with the with the so-called coronavirus i mean the pandemic is over uh the, the death rates have, have have plummeted but you wouldn't know that by listening to the to uh St. Anthony Fauci or reading the New York Times or attending to CNN. You know, they, they, they have tried to keep the, um, the panic alive. It's panic at all costs. And I, I think that everything that's happening between now and November 3rd is all about November 3rd. There is, um, it's a full court press. It's a monolithic wall. It's a primal scream to uh, oust the bad orange man and install what? What are we? What are we installing, uh, Joe Biden? It's not, you know. But of course, I mean, Joe Biden will be his administration will be over the day after he's elected. Uh, so, I mean, we, we really are on the cusp of uh, an extraordinary cultural revolution, the likes of which America has never seen. And I say that as someone who has written, you know, extensively about. Um, the, you know the, the the dry run for this in the late '60s and, and '70s. You know we had a kind of cultural revolution then that could have could have uh, turned out far more toxic than it did. It was bad enough, but this time uh, all the forces of, of um, progressive sentiment have lined up together, and they have on their side not only not only the left wing uh, academics and young radicals but also corporate culture i mean the fact that some an entity like brooks brothers should be you know signing up for their for their uh, um, self-abasement exercises uh, and getting in line with with a toxic marxist anti-american soros and chinese funded uh, entity like Black Lives Matter is is extraordinary, and it should give us all pause. Because you know, Victor Davis Hanson had a brilliant column yesterday at American Greatness, where he pointed out that the real the real enemies uh, of these people are it's it's not it, it won't you know they say they hate the capitalists and so on, but it's not Jeff Bezos or or Bill Gates or or, or George Soros or all those other billionaires who are going to be hurt. It's just it's Stalin's playbook. It's the kulaks. It's the yeah. it's the small businesses. 
It's the, you know, the independent people. The, the thing that they hate more than anything is the idea that you might be able to stand up for yourself. So it's, it's, uh, you know, the, it's, the, it's the middle class, the upper middle class, the businessmen and women who have tried to make something of their lives, who are the backbone of the country. They are the real targets. And you can be sure that should this, uh, should this cultural revolution succeed, it will utterly change the face of America. Uh, let's hold it there, uh, Roger. And when we come back, I want to ask you what Trump's overarching message should be to uh, frame the November 3 election. More with New Criterion's Roger Kimball when we return. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. We're back with the new Criterion's Roger Kimball, and uh, let's uh, talk about uh, the November 3rd election and uh, what, if any, pivot Trump needs to make law and order coming out of covid and we won't be out of covid that regardless of what the numbers say that that's clear the media has made that decision and that comes as a surprise to no one so what is his overarching message to me there was this uh, moment the other night at dallas where this black gentleman named damani felder filmed a impromptu black lives matter vandal fest and he's just filming them he's giving commentary on what they're doing and he says this is what they want It seems to me that's the frame through all of this. This is what they want. What do you want? Or this is what they want. This is what we want. This is what I want for you. Some facsimile of that. Yes. Uh, Is that how it needs to crystallize? Yes. You know, I think that Donald Trump's speech at Mount Rushmore was, in my view, brilliant. And not just as a rhetorical artifact, but it really outlined two views of America. America as a freedom-loving republic governed by we the people, entrepreneurial, prosperous, generous, or it's cancel culture and the atavistic, savage, revolutionary, radical activism that we see on the streets of various Democratic-run cities today. The choice really is not between Joe Biden and Donald Trump in November. It's a choice between civilization and anarchy. I mean, you, you were describing before the yeomanry, to borrow Joel Kotkinism. It's basically the people who played by the rules versus people who say there are no rules. That's right. And the great advantage that the people who say there are no rules have is that they have mastered the left-wing revolutionary rhetoric of caring and sharing. This has been true of this kind of revolutionary sentiment since at least the French Revolution, where they kept talking about virtue, how virtuous they were. The word virtue was always on the lips of Robespierre. He talked about virtue and its emanation, terror. The reason why they had the terror was to, to um, enforce virtue throughout French society. Uh, John Kasich uh, reportedly has signed up to be President Trump's campaign re-election GOTV point person. 
Of course he has. And of course he has. I, and 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 I, and I mean that seriously. I, John, I John Kasich is doing President Trump a huge favor by appearing at the DNC to support Joe Biden, the same way Mitt Romney is doing him a huge favor. You want to talk about motivating your base, and there's a juxtaposition there as well, which is to say. I'm still that guy in 2016 that is going to take on the tired old establishment, the tired uh, combine, if you will, to borrow a Chicago term coined by John Cass, the tired combine inside the beltway that grows government and their bank accounts at your expense. And John Kasich is who I said he was. Mitt Romney is who I said uh, I was. I tried to be nice to them. I tried to play ball because you got to go along to get things done. But I'm not going to go along their route, the route they took the Republican Party and by extension this country. So if they want to go over and support Joe Biden, Godspeed. Yes. No, I, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And I, you know, I vacillate, frankly, between thinking that Donald Trump is just going to crush uh uh, the the left in November and being very worried about the um, the shrill, unremitting, very well organized, very well funded um, opposition he faces. I mean, I, I really do not understand, for example, the whole never Trump phenomenon. These former uh, conservatives who who are willing to sign up for a um, uh, a, a program that is deeply anti-American, anti-Semitic, uh, and the enemy of democratic capitalism. I mean, how could they do that? How could they sign up for, uh, for Joe Biden, who has, to- you know, I mean, he, I mean, I say he, but of course it's, it's his handlers. He has totally uh, embraced the left wing of his party. This is, you know, Bernie Sanders. It's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I mean, how can they, how can they uh, former Republicans, sign up for this? I, I really do not understand it. That, I think it's that, uh, I mean, their status and their income streams are more important than the nation. Uh, perhaps you're right. Perhaps it's as, it's as, as simple and cynical as that. I, 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 <laughs> I, you know, I, I think low, but I, I'm often reminded that I don't think low enough. <laughs> Roger Kimball. Editor of the New Criterion, Roger, thanks for joining us as always. My pleasure. I just want someone to send me. Oh, oh, oh. I'll always be there when you yeah, You know I like to keep my cheeks dry today. So stay with me and I'll have it made. And I don't understand why I sleep all day. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Quite a bit about uh, K through 12 education earlier in the show on the matter of schools reopening right at the outset of the show, in fact, with Dr. Roger Klein, former head of molecular oncology at the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, now I want to talk a little bit about um, the collegiate level because we haven't talked 
enough about this. This hasn't been enough uh, part of the discussion when you're talking about businesses that are going away thanks to the response to the virus. I'm going to emphasize that response to the virus. It didn't have to be this way. It's the choices that we have made and are making. The response, much like the response to the lawlessness on the streets, it doesn't have to be doesn't have to play out like you're seeing it play out. It's the choices that are being made, the response. Uh, and the response is you're going to see colleges disappear before we come out of COVID uh, in terms of the response to anything that resembles pre-COVID-19 America. And I'll get to that moment in a moment, a good piece by Richard Vetter in Forbes magazine. But I, I want to just offer uh, uh, some perspectives from students who are making their own case in a way that uh, maybe primary gradesters can't for colleges to reopen their campuses for in-person learning. We brought to you an op-ed from the journal a couple of weeks ago. Georgetown, maybe it was last week, Georgetown professor who is going back. The professors at Georgetown have the option to go back or do distance education, distance instruction, and he is choosing to go back out of a sense of obligation to his students. Boy, isn't that lost, particularly when you're protected by the teachers' unions that run these school systems in major urban centers, most notably. But uh, this piece at thecollegefix.com by a young woman named Olivia Tokalski, who goes to UNC Charlotte, she uh, writes, uh, I've uh, faced my fair share of challenges at UNC Charlotte. She reminds us that, unfortunately, UNC Charlotte was the site of a campus shooting. Gunmen killed two of my classmates, wounded four others one year ago. That healing took time, but we did find our new normal. I believe we can find that same spirit again with this new challenge we face, the, coronav- the coronavirus pandemic. I call on the leaders of UNC Charlotte to believe in our resilience once again and face the unknown with courage and a conviction to the best education possible. Hmm. Courage. Face the unknown. Courage. Conviction. Please open my campus, Miss Kalski writes. Please open my campus, UNC Charlotte, so I can get the best education available to me. We know from the data and from just experiential commentary that uh, the distance learning, not the best education available. The shift to online, she writes, disrupted every aspect of our education from in-person classes to club activities, intramural sports, tutoring and much more. College life has not been the same. With everyone being hyper aware of their health and the importance of practicing extra health precautions, we can continue our in-person education. I need it. And I know many other students are ready to be back on campus, she writes. Similarly, from the Ivy League of all places, a uh, op-ed from a senior at Cornell, Michael Johns is his name, uh, he makes the point that uh, Cornell is a time we live, not a thing we do. A pretty thoughtful piece, actually. The time at Cornell, he writes, is both immensely valuable and yet vanishingly scarce. Students are led to believe they have four long years, but that's misleading. The truth is that we have far, far less time to be, strictly speaking, at college. Given that most students only spend about 60% of their time on campus, the average undergraduate has less than two and a half years with which to enjoy Cornell, and much of that time is dedicated to juggling demanding responsibilities and fretting over countless exams. The precious free time we were given to absorb it all is painfully elusive, largely reserved for the beginning and end of our time in Ithaca. The time in between, though, is the largest part of what defines our memories, but that time isn't valuable just because we were young and at Cornell. It's also not exceptional or unique because of any of our individual accomplishments. These were all good things to be sure, but our time is really made extraordinary because of a long series of infinitesimal and 
at the time, seemingly unremarkable moments. We can all appreciate the big things, but in the true 30 months or so we have at Cornell, it's the little things that cumulatively make it a time that we lived, not just a thing we did. A time that we lived, not just a thing we did. And I'm sure if you look back, for those of you who went to college, or even just uh, you know matriculated in a vocational program or uh, any extended period of learning and exploration and introduction to new things, you go back and you remember those interactions as you went through that experience together with other people. Um, I mean, uh, my disposition is that life is about the interpersonal and intellectual connections you make. And so a college campus is where you make a lot of interpersonal and hopefully intellectual connections. And I think that's what Mr. Johns is speaking to. Something else, and this gets to the reckoning that may be coming. Uh, survey from the Koch Foundation in conjunction with College Pulse finds that uh, while students give, and they surveyed uh, some significant number, more than 200, 5,000 full-time undergrads at more than 200, 200 universities, most uh, students gave their colleges pretty good marks for the response to the crisis. But if it's going to be online learning all, uh, uh, only or mostly, the vast majority of those surveyed think the school should reduce tuition rates more than nine in 10 students said they should pay much less or a little less with two thirds saying much less. Well, that's a problem because uh, as Richard Vetter writes in Forbes, uh, a trend that was happening uh, like so many trends is being expedited by the response to the COVID pandemic. And that trend is there are a lot of colleges in financial trouble that uh, are in no position to take a hit on the revenue they generate from tuition. And uh, he uh, cites uh, the case of Ohio, where he goes through the situation at Akron University, Ohio University and um, Wright State University. And, uh, you know, just the declines in student population over the last couple of decades, combined with some of the debt that they've taken on to build athletic facilities, to make it more attractive, to get a better return on the subsidies they're providing to the uh, school's athletics and, uh, you know, absent some significant federal aid, in addition to the federal aid these schools already get with subsidizing inflated tuition, you're going to see school closures. Uh, it's not just for uh, schools run by Jane Sanders anymore. You're going to see named colleges that you're not paying attention to uh, fold just as named businesses you didn't you weren't paying attention to have folded in this and more will come. The landscape in higher ed is going to change. This is Dan Brown. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back and. Uh, on a lighter note, a study conducted by one poll on behalf of Breyer's Ice Cream finds uh, your ice cream flavor may say a lot about your character. Hmm. Some ice cream flavors predicting uh, when you'll find love, while others determine whether you love dogs or cats, sci-fi movies or jazz. <laughs> Boy, uh, Breyers is uh, doing a deep dive, huh, to uh, 
tickle people's taste buds? According to the results uh, of the survey of 2,000 Americans, that was unfortunately limited to the basics. What about the discerning palate that uh, likes, uh, well, for example, your green men ice cream? Not included. Basics, chocolate, vanilla, or strawberry? Strawberry ice cream, fans of strawberry ice cream. Find love at the age of 24, on average. They reportedly like doing laundry, listening to jazz, and watching sci-fi movies. Hmm. Fans of vanilla ice cream may not find love until the age of 25, on average. They don't enjoy doing laundry. They prefer washing the dishes. Washing the dishes, that is. They also like dogs and tend to be introverted and are night owls. Hmm. Um, this is like one of those post hoc ergo prompter hoc. Uh, wet sidewalks cause rain. Uh, wet sidewalks don't cause rain. Liking vanilla ice cream doesn't cause these other things, but okay. The correlation, I'm sure, which I bet is very weak, but it's fun. Uh, chocolate fans, they can't find love until the old age of 26 on average. They uh, like romantic comedies as opposed to sci-fi. They're also extroverted as opposed to your vanilla introverts, which tends to make sense. I mean, thus the description of something as plain Jane as vanilla. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, chocolate fans, by contrast, are the life of the party. They're extroverted like pop and rock music. Mint chocolate chip fans like myself and particularly more specific green mint. Because you could do the vanilla mint not included in the survey. Although this uh, report that comes to us from Fox News, of all places, suggests that you'll probably find love someday. Sure. That's what I've been told for years. The study also determined people's uh, favorite ice cream topping. Surprising 52% say chocolate chips were their favorite topping. I don't know why that's surprising. Whipped cream, 37%. Other popular topics included hot fudge, 49%. Nuts, 40%. What about caramel? Yeah, I, I don't know. I guess I'm an outlier in this. but And also the toppings don't seem to uh, connect to any indications about somebody's personality, love of uh, animals uh, or um, hobbies and interests like doing laundry or washing the dishes. Interesting choices. Anyway, um, I, you know, take this for what it's worth, which is, you know, not much. Thank you for joining us on another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.